Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. So let's dive right in. I want to invite you to reflect back on your own life and consider with me this morning, have you ever gone through something so difficult that you were left wondering, where is God in this? Why would, how could God allow me to go through something like this? Perhaps you were suffering emotionally, a spouse left you, betrayed you, a parent abandoned you, cancer diagnosis, fear, anxiety, depression, perhaps you were suffering spiritually, felt like God had left you, or perhaps more likely, like you had left God. I met with a young man just this past week who shared that for years now, every few months, he will have these stretches where he can barely sleep or eat, sometimes couldn't even bring himself to leave the house because he was so terrified of death and what comes after young man in his mid-twenties. Is there really a heaven? And if so, can I be sure that I'm going there? Or perhaps your suffering was physical. My poor daughter, Ellery, caught the stomach bug this past week, and I was reminded of probably the low point of my own life physically. About 10 years ago, I developed this bizarre neurological condition called Bell's palsy, which essentially leaves half of your face paralyzed. And around the same time, I broke my thumb playing basketball, and shortly thereafter, I caught the stomach bug. So there I sat on the toilet, uh, rapidly losing fluids from both ends, uh, struggling still to vomit because of the face paralysis, and struggling even more to even hold the trash can with only one good hand. And in that moment, all I could think was, God, why? funny to look back on now, but I can assure you there's nothing humorous about it in the moment, and maybe the question isn't at all funny for some of you this morning, because you don't have to look back to find your time of greatest suffering. Perhaps some of you are right in the thick of it this morning. Where is God in our suffering? That had to be the question on the minds and hearts of the Israelites, God's people here in Exodus chapter 2, when they had endured not just weeks, not just years, but centuries, 400 years of suffering. They, they suffered far long, longer than our country has even existed at the hands of the Egyptians. Has God forgotten all about us? Well, God is going to assure them this morning, and he's going to assure us through his word that he does not forget his people in our suffering, quite the opposite. And in these 15 short verses we're going to examine together, it will offer us six assurances about God's response in the face of our suffering. And each of these six assurances then tells us something about God's overarching purpose for us in allowing us to suffer. You got that six different ways that we will answer both of these questions. What is God's reaction to suffering? What does God allow us to suffer in the first place? So six responses to suffering that you find in your bulletins there, which I tried to helpfully alliterate for you, and then six reasons for suffering that I added later and gave up on trying to alliterate and find a pattern. So Uh, We should acknowledge from the start, too, that this list is by no means exhaustive. The Bible has much more to say uh, on both of these questions. Why does God let us suffer? How does God react to our suffering? But we'll have to save those answers for another sermon. So I invite you to stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word from Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort it brings sufferers like us in a fallen world. Father, would you use your word this morning to encourage us, to strengthen us, to equip and empower, embolden us, also to challenge us and convict us where necessary, to grow us, to sustain us, preserve us. In your strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God's first response to suffering here is to show us that he cares. God cares. When we left off in chapter 2 last week examining Moses' backstory, his pr being prepared to lead God's people, Moses was down in Midian, you remember. But here in verses 23 through 25, we're taken back to Egypt. This is, this is sort of a meanwhile back in Egypt cutaway. And we are informed first of the historical context in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Now, I told you two weeks ago that we think the Pharaoh, at the time of their, their later exodus in chapter 14, the one who would succeed this Pharaoh was Thutmose III. And that would make the Pharaoh who dies here, the one who had killed all the babies back in chapter 1 and preceded him, and he guesses, Thutmose II. Very good. Some smart, astute listeners this morning. But the Bible is actually making a theological point here by not naming either of these pharaohs that, that the most presumably important, powerful person in the world is not even worth naming compared to the all-surpassing power, 
greatness and glory of God. And God, who has been operating behind the scenes thus far in chapters 1 and 2, barely even mentioned so far in the story, he is about to step up into the limelight and take front and center stage. And what is it here that draws God into the middle of the action? It is his people's suffering. And more specifically, it is their cries for help amidst it. They've been suffering for some 400 years now, but this is the first mention we hear of them actually calling out to God for deliverance from it. The people groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And when they cry out for rescue, he has, God has four distinct responses here because God cares for us in four ways here. First, God hears our cries. Because he cares about our feelings, God hears our cries. He wants to hear what is on our hearts, the good, the bad, and the ugly. God invites it all. Philippians 4, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, to me. Now, God doesn't promise to grant our requests. God is not our, our magic genie. He's not some cosmic vending machine dispensing whatever you know, buttons we press. Instead, God promises us something better. He promises us peace which surpasses understanding. And yet he wants to know our requests, our thoughts, and our feelings because he cares and he listens. God invites us, Jeremiah 33, 3. He says, call to me and I will answer you. Again, God doesn't promise here to give us the answer we want. I've been asked many times as a pastor, well, what, what about unanswered prayers? Did you know there's no such thing as an unanswered prayer? There's only unwelcomed answers to prayers, undesired answers, but that's different than being unanswered. God may be saying no to you, or he may just be saying not yet to you. But regardless of his answer, God still invites our prayers, our petitions, because he cares what is on our hearts, and he cares about our feelings. Now, we have to be careful here because we can't always trust our feelings, can we? The world says, trust your heart. And if you feel it, it must be true. God says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Don't trust it. Just because our feelings are important, even important to God, that doesn't make them reliable. So sometimes we have to preach to our hearts. Sometimes we have to fight our feelings with facts, don't we? This is especially true in the midst of suffering. You may feel this morning like God has forgotten you. But the fact is, though even your father and mother may forsake you, the Lord will never leave or abandon you. Psalm 27, Deuteronomy 31. You may feel this morning like nothing good could possibly come out of this situation, but the fact is God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8. You may feel like God has finally let you down this time. God finally dropped the ball. He made a mistake this time. But the fact is, God's word is perfect. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright as he, God does not make mistakes. Deuteronomy 32. So if God is allowing you to go through it this morning, he must know something that you just don't yet. But while you are in the midst of it, God wants to hear from you because he cares. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cries. His ear is going out to you, extending to you this morning. Second, God remembers. He cares by seeing and God cares by remembering. Specifically, he remembers his covenant faithfulness. Christopher Wright explains, this does not imply that God has forgotten. Rather, 
it means he is preparing to take action in relation to what is remembered, specifically his covenant promises to Abram. I told you, remember, Genesis was all about God's promise to his people, and Exodus is all about God making good on that promise by making them into a people. Well, in case we've forgotten from our study of Genesis together two years ago, there was one not-so-fun part of God's promise way back in Genesis 15 that God's people seem to have sort of selectively forgotten about. And that was that God had actually promised them that they would suffer in Egypt. Six and a half centuries prior, God promised, know for certain, Abram, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But then God promised, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So in order to make good on his promise to deliver them, first God had to make, promise on his, make good on his promise to allow them to suffer. But I want, I want you to see one important thing in the text here, subtle. God didn't actually wait until the Israelites cried out to him to take action on their behalf. Do you see that? It's significant that these pivotal verses, 23 through 25, they come at the end of chapter 2, not the beginning. Why? Well, because God, it shows us that God was already preparing Moses, the deliverer, for the rescue mission that he was going to be called to 80 years before the Israelites even bothered to, to cry out for it. God didn't just, God wasn't just thinking this plan up as he went. Well, I, I hear the cry, I guess I should get to work and deliver them. No, it had always been God's plan to deliver his people and to use Moses to do it and to prepare him. But nevertheless, verse 24 here does mark an important turning point in the story. Israel's promised suffering is now complete. Her promised salvation can now commence. Third, God hears our cries, he remembers his covenant, and now God sees our condition. Jesus remarks in the New Testament, he says, what did two sparrows cost? A penny? He says, and yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from God's notice. God sees suffering. Fear not, therefore, Jesus said, for you are of more value than many sparrows. God sees your pain and he cares. David said, you have kept count of all my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. God's promise is that our tears in this life aren't wasted. He keeps every single one of them collected in a jar in heaven, just waiting to turn them into joy, to redeem them. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Jesus promises, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God sees our condition, friends, and he cares. Lastly, God hears our cries, remembers his covenant, sees our condition, and God knows our concerns. He knows. This Hebrew word used for know, yada, it is the same verb used elsewhere euphemistically, for knowing intimately, as in Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore him a son. Now, obviously, that is not what Moses means here when he says that God knew, but he is making the point that God knew Israel's suffering intimately, even personally. Wright interprets this passage. He says the Hebrew suggests not just that God is cognitively aware of what is being inflicted on his people, knowing in his head, but that he in some sense experiences it himself. God knows it from the inside. Here is how the prophet Isaiah would reflect back on Israel's time in Egypt centuries later. Isaiah says, in all their affliction, God was afflicted. Did you hear that? Now some theologians would say, whoa, well, that, that's just a name for anthropomorphism. That's a word picture, a metaphor. You can't take that literally. God can't suffer, immutability, impassibility, pull out all the fancy theological words. 
I'm just telling you, the Bible says in all their affliction, God was afflicted. That's how much God cares. God suffers with his people. It's reminiscent of how Isaiah wrote about another co-sufferer just a few chapters earlier when Isaiah prophesied of Israel's Messiah to come, the suffering servant of him Isaiah would write, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's the exact same word in Hebrew. The Messiah, Jesus, would yada our grief. He would know it, experience it personally. He would enter into it. In fact, Jesus would bear our suffering on the cross in our place. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. Friends, why does God allow us to suffer? Well, for starters, starters, reason number one, it is to draw us to himself. As C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that was certainly true for his people Israel here. Uh, Philip Ryken notes, says, one reason God allowed his people to suffer here was to show them their need for salvation. If God hadn't let them suffer, would the Israelites have ever even desired to leave Egypt? says it was hard enough to get them to leave even when they were suffering. And we're going to read about that just a few chapters later. I mean, within a chapter or two of, of leaving Egypt, they got a little hungry, and they, prayed, they, they, they were ready to turn around and go right back. Right, let's just go back to Egypt. You know, hundreds of years of slavery, eh, I'm hungry. And so Riken says, this teaches us an important lesson about our own spiritual pilgrimage, that suffering helps us to look for our Savior. It is hard enough for us to leave aside the treasures of this evil world, even though we suffer in it. How much harder it is for us to desire the new heavens and the new earth when our lives here are so comfortable. Friend, is it possible that God is sparing you the deceitfulness of the comforts of this world right now and allowing you instead to go through the difficulty of suffering in his mercy to help you look for your Savior? I know I, for one, can personally attest that nothing jumpstarts my prayer life quite like a little suffering. Is that true? That nothing causes me to draw near to God quite like going through a really tough season of life where it feels like just about every other possible place that I could and usually do turn for comfort and hope and security is being systematically stripped away from me. When we are left on our knees and the only place left to look is the place that we should have been looking all along. is up to him, to our Savior. God cares about our suffering, and he wants to use it to draw us to him. Number two, God's second response to suffering is that he comes down. God comes down for his people when they suffer. Chapter three now opens up back in Midian with Moses tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, who was introduced to us last chapter as Reuel. Scholars think that Jethro was his title. It means his excellency. He was the priest of Midian. There's uh, also some debate while we're at it about the mountain. Are Horeb and Sinai, are they different names for the same mountain? Or is Horeb the name of the, the whole region and Sinai, the mountain? It's unclear. It's also unclear which mountain this even is historically. It's, it's most often identified today with Mount Jebel Musa, which is still called Moses' mountain today by Bedouins in the 
Sinai region. But the third and most consequential question of identity that I do want to focus in on comes in, chapter, in verse 2 when we hear the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. But then, just two verses later, this angel appears to be replaced by God himself who is calling out to Moses from the bush. So what's going on here? Well, you might remember we read similar encounters with God all throughout the book of Genesis. Hagar, Abraham, Jacob, all of them saw at quote, angel of the Lord, who was then subsequently in the very same passage identified as God himself. Now, textually, we could note that the Hebrew phrase here in the Hebrew literally just reads the angel Yahweh. So it doesn't say the angel of Yahweh. There's no genitive case being used here. It's just the angel Yahweh. So perhaps God is just showing up as an angel, taking on quasi in between human and, and, and God-like form as an angel. The early church commentators were quick to identify this as a theophany of the pre-incarnate Christ himself. This is Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. But in whatever way, shape, form, or fashion you want to interpret that, what is clear here is that God showed up in the Sinai wilderness to Moses on that day. God showed up. Because not only does God care about our suffering, because listen, God could just sort of passively care up, up in heaven, like, gosh, man, that, that really stinks. I, I feel for you. I feel you. I mean, not, not literally, because I'm up here in heaven, no pain, no tears up here, but, you know, metaphorically. But no, our God comes down to us to be with us in the midst of our suffering. He makes it clearest here in verses 7 and 8 when God announces, I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them. That's the significance of the burning bush. Some commentators think it symbolizes Israel. They were burning yet not consumed because they were suffering but, but not yet destroyed in Egypt. No. Others think it symbolizes Jesus. They will speculate, you know, the most common bush in this region is the thorn bush. And so this is prefiguring the one who would wear the crown of thorns and undergo the fiery trial yet not be extinguished on the cross. Maybe. But what we can know for sure here is that fire all over the place in Scripture represents God's very own presence. You remember how God sealed his covenant with Abram back in Genesis 15. He appeared as a blazing torch and a smoking fire pot to pass through the cut pieces of the animals, the sacrifices. In Deuteronomy 4.24, God is going to be called a consuming fire. We need look no further than the book of Exodus, where God is going to descend on Mount Sinai in fire in chapter 19. He, he led them to the base of the mountain as a pillar of fire. And spoiler, spoiler alert, Exodus is going to end the very last verse in chapter 40 with God descending once again on the tabernacle that his people build him in the form of fire. Over and over again, the symbol and significance of the burning bush is that God was with Moses personally and that God would soon be with his people in their suffering. But it did have the bonus effect of proving that God can do the impossible. Any of y'all ever seen a bush on fire, any, on fire yet not burning? It proved that God can take the extremely ordinary, a bush, and make it extraordinary with his power, which is exactly, by the way, what God is about to do with Moses. Really ordinary guy is going to become extraordinary. And with his people, Israel. I mean, God will tell them later, it wasn't about anything special about you that I saved you. Because I'm so extraordinary. 
Friends, that's true of us still today. Maybe you feel like, I, it's nothing. I'm so ordinary. Yeah, but God is extraordinary. And God is still in the miracle working business today, by the way. Because God still draws near to his people in our suffering. And that is the second reason that we see here why God allows us to suffer is not just to draw us to him, but that God also promises to draw near to us as well when we're hurting. Psalm 34 verse 18 is one of the most beautiful and encouraging promises in all of scripture for those who are hurting that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147 verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 23 verse 4, many of you will, will have this one memorized. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You're with me. You draw near to me. And I could go on and on, scripture after scripture, all promising us the same thing, that God meets with us in a unique way in the wilderness moments of our lives. It was true for Jacob when he was running for his life from Esau out in the desert, and God showed up on the ladder. It was true for Hagar when she was exiled out into the wilderness, and God met her there. El Roy, the God who sees. It was true of Elijah when he was running for his life from Ahab and Jezebel out into the desert. Time and time again, God proves he meets with his people in a special way in our times of greatest need. The dark night of the soul. And I don't know about you, but just speaking personally, there are very few times in my life, if I count them on one hand, when I, I, I feel like I have truly heard God's voice in an almost audible way, when I feel like I've truly felt God's presence in a really palpable way, and it has almost always come in the midst of suffering, when I was hurting what God wants far more for us than our comfort is that we would be comforted by him. God wants to draw near and to comfort us in our pain because he wants relationship with us. We draw near to him. He draws near to us. When do you follow him most closely as your shepherd? When do you cling to his robe as you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death? That's when... So if he has to use suffering to accomplish that, to, to bring us close to him, then he will do it. Number three, number three, at the same time, shifting gears now, God cautions us in our suffering. This is another different response of God to suffering. He cautions us. Notice the stark contrast here from verse four to verse five. In verse 4, God beckons Moses, 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 draw near. In verse 5, God warns him, okay, yeah, that's far enough. That's close enough. You, you can stop right there. Don't come a step closer. As a matter of fact, go ahead and take your shoes off because you are standing on holy ground. Really, in the middle of the desert, this is ground Moses probably walked on a hundred times over the decades What's so holy about it? It's holy because God's there now, right? I've, I haven't been to the Holy Land yet, modern-day Israel. But when you see the pictures, don't you sometimes wonder, y'all have been fighting for thousands of years over that? Like that little patch of dust? But God chooses the weak to shame the strong. And it is... A holy land because God was there and because God will return there to reign in the new Jerusalem at the end of history. So the point is that God, God purposely chooses land like that, chooses people like us to prove that he can make any land holy. He can make any people his instruments of his will. It's the, the reason God raises up leaders like Moses, David, Paul, all three of the murderers, God does it to prove he can use anybody to accomplish his own good purposes. And, and yet God warns us in the process, watch out, I'm holy. I am not like you. I am totally set apart in my perfection, in my glory. So if you're going to draw near to me, Moses, it's going to be on my terms. You know this 
problem of evil, as it's sometimes called in philosophy, theology, this question of how a good God could allow us to suffer, it really hasn't been much of a question at all for most of human history. Did you know that? Again, any student of philosophical history will tell you it really wasn't until the mid-18th century enlightenment when humanists tried to dethrone God and make man the center of the universe that this question really became relevant or popular. For thousands of years before that, most people just assume that suffering is inevitable in a fallen world and that God doesn't really owe us anything otherwise. I mean, this is, this is what Scripture teaches. What we deserve is, is God's wrath, is punishment because of our sin. What we should be asking is the problem of good. God, why do you allow me to experience any good in life? But this is what Scripture teaches. Think of the book of Job. This is the quintessential test case of so-called unjustified suffering, right? Job was a righteous man, blameless even, we're told. And yet God let him endure immense suffering. And for the better part of 37 chapters, Job's response, Job cries out, God, why? God, how could you? And do you remember God's answer to Job when he finally speaks up and replies in chapter 38? It's not, Job, I wanted a relationship with you. I wanted to draw near to one another. That's great, but that's not what God says. Not this time. God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Sorry, tell me, is it you that brings the sun out every morning and brings the moon out every night? Is that you that does that? God says, I'll be the one asking the questions from now on, Job, these next few chapters. In other words, as God puts it in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. I am holy. I am utterly set apart. I'm not like you. And I'm not your magic genie here to do your bidding. I don't exist for your pleasure. Actually, you exist for my pleasure. And if I have greater purposes in mind, a bigger plan at work that you just can't see yet and understand yet, but which includes you going through a light and momentary affliction because it's preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that's going to be beyond all comparison, then maybe the better question instead of God, how could you, is, God, how could you? Thank you. We rejoice in our sufferings, Paul said, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So if you come to me, God says, it will be on my terms, ready to accept my will, my ways, which are higher than yours. And yet... If the point of verse 5 is how unlike God we are, the point of verse 6 is how very much like one another we are. So that's the thing. We, we like to think that we're, we're special, we're unique in our suffering. No one's experienced this before. God tells Moses, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What he's essentially telling him is, Moses, this ain't my first rodeo. I've been in the business of redeeming suffering for centuries now, before you were a twinkle in your parents' eye, right? bringing good out of evil. So God cautions us against thinking that our suffering is somehow unique and we're special. God is repeating here almost verbatim his words to Jacob from Genesis 46. Don't have time to look at all the similarities, but Philip Ryken does point out the function of these similarities is to remind us that the same God who has proven himself faithful in the past is still the same God at work in our lives today. Like Moses, Jacob, he says, was running for his life when he met a young woman, watered her flocks, was invited to meet her father, and then he suffered. Such connections remind us that the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob is also the God of Moses, that the God who made his covenant with the patriarchs in Genesis is the very same God who will... Make good on those promises now in Exodus and lead his people out of Egypt. But friends, God will do it in his own way, 
and in his own timing. You remember what happened last week when Moses tried to do it in his timing. Start the revolution early, take matters into his own hands, you remember? He kills the Egyptian. Come on, let's go. Who's with me? Not only did they not follow his lead, they tattled on him. (laughs) They told Pharaoh, Moses had to run for his life and wait another 40 years before God could prepare him, thoroughly humble him enough for the job that he was calling him to. And that's the third reason that God lets us suffer sometimes, is to humble us. God's word informs us that God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble, and nothing humbles us. Nothing brings us back down to earth. If we've gotten too big for our britches, nothing brings us more importantly back to God and reliance on him when we become a little too self-reliant, quite like suffering, does it? And so what did the apostle Peter exhort his churches to do in the midst of their suffering? He said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, in God's own timing, he may exalt you. He'll exalt you. And then, very next verse, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Humble yourself and cry out for help. You are not too prideful, too big, too strong to need God's help. You better not be. Number four, God's fourth response to suffering, and I'll hurry with these last half, these last three points, uh, but God comes through. He cares. He comes down. He cautions, and he comes through. In verses 7 and 8 here, God doesn't just see, hear, remember, and know. He acts. God says, yeah, I've seen my people. I've heard their cry. I know they're suffering, and now I'm coming down to roll up my sleeves and deliver them. And friends, when God makes a promise like this to his people, no amount of suffering will stand in his way from him coming through and making good on that promise to you. Do you believe that? No amount of suffering. Psalm 34, 17 promises, when the righteous cry out for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. Did you hear that? How can God promise that? When the righteous cry out for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. Any of you have no troubles this morning? Well, then what is God promising? Here's what he's promising. Let's fast forward a couple thousand years to the New Testament for a second. Here's Jesus' promise to you. If you're a sheep of his flock, if Jesus is your good shepherd, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, and I will give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will be able to snatch my sheep out of my Father's hand. Friends, God will make good on his promise to deliver you out of all your troubles. Even if he doesn't do it in this lifetime, even if he doesn't answer your prayers in the way you want him to this side of eternity, even if God chooses to continue to allow you to suffer for reasons beyond your comprehension for the next 10, 20, 50 years, you can be confident this morning that God will one day deliver you from every trouble because Jesus, your Savior, came through for you on the cross and he purchased your deliverance and now he's offering you eternal life and no one can snatch you out of his hand. The hands that made the universe are more than capable of holding you, of keeping you, of preserving you, of sustaining you all the way to the finish line when he at last one day brings you home to fullness of joy, pleasure at his right hand forevermore. And why does God do it? God's fourth reason for letting us suffer, to show off. He does it to show off, to display his great power to save, to deliver, to come through for us. For all to see. If you didn't have slavery in Egypt, you you, you wouldn't get the Red Sea parting. 
Psalm 106, 8 tells us, when our fathers were in Egypt, God saved them. Why? For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power for all nations to see. God does, does it for his glory to display his power. Number five, fifth reason to allow suffering, sorry, fifth response to our suffering is that God calls. In the midst of our suffering, God calls us, doesn't he? Now, all of this sounds great to Moses up to this point until verse 10. Because verse 10 is where God tells him, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Pastor Thad is going to pick up next week this conversation while I'm in Florida with a whole sermon on when God calls us and how not to respond like Moses, who tried not once, not twice, but five times, five different excuses to get out of his assignment from God. But the point that I want to make simply for our purposes here this morning is this, that while God promises ultimately to deliver us, he doesn't promise it's going to be easy. He doesn't promise to make it easy on you that he's going to do it all for you. In fact, he may be calling some of you this morning to step up and to play the part that God is assigning you and taking responsibility and ownership and agency to help alleviate your own suffering. Maybe that's physical. Maybe you suffer from health problems that are totally preventable. And God's just calling you to get off the couch and exercise and watch what you eat. Or you suffer from Financial problems. God's just really practically calling you this morning to be more fiscally responsible. Or you suffer from relationship problems. Again, financial. I mean, God could just deliver the check that you need in the mail. Pray, maybe he will. But maybe you're just going to have to tighten the budget. Right? Really practical, ordinary means that God is calling you to respond. You suffer from relationship problems of your own making. You keep wondering when God is going to bring you that spouse, that soulmate, that God is saying, maybe when you deserve her. Why don't you focus on yourself and me and your relationship with me, becoming the kind of person who's worth spending the rest of your life with, and then I'll take care of the rest when it's time. <laughs> You're not ready yet. And that brings us to God's fifth reason for allowing us to suffer, is that God grows us through suffering, doesn't he? James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of all kinds, that you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You want to be perfect. You want to be Christ-like. Christian, you want to be Christ-like? Welcome suffering into your life. Jesus did. You grow twice as much during the hard times as you do during the easy ones, don't you? Perhaps God is letting some of you struggle this morning, like the butterfly who has to push its way out of the cocoon, because in doing so, it develops and strengthens its wings for flight for the rest of its life. Maybe God is calling you to growth through your pain this morning. No pain, no gain. There's so much more practical that could be said here. But lastly, number six, God promises to respond to our suffering by coming with us, through it. He not only comes down, he comes with us through it. Here is Moses' first excuse that you'll examine next week with that in verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? He's Pharaoh, the most important person in the world, powerful man. Whom I'm a shepherd. An exile. I got no family left. Who am I? What a bad question. Because the answer, of course, is no one. Moses, Moses is a nobody. What's important isn't who Moses was. What's important isn't who you or I are this morning. What's important is who God is. You may be a nobody. You can take heart this morning. Your God is is a somebody. He is the somebody. You've heard that God won't give you more than you can handle. Nothing could be more unbiblical 
Listen, you and I cannot survive a trip to Walmart without God's help. Okay? The biblical truth is that God won't give you more than he can handle. He will consistently give you more than you can handle to push you into his arms. And in Hebrews 13, 21, God promises to equip you with everything good that you may be able to do his will. And how does he equip us? He equips us with himself, with his very own spirit, his Holy Spirit to come live with us, dwell with us, go with us through every trial you can face in this life. But here's the thing, twist ending at the very end. Verse 12, did you catch Verse 12, the sign that God has been with you through the storms of life. He says, this shall be the sign for you, Moses, that I've sent you, that I'm with you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God again on this mountain. I'm going to send you to Egypt. You're going to come back and serve me once again on this mountain. Moses, you're going to know that I was with you all along through this year-long journey, the hardest year of your life, trying to get the Israelites out of Egypt plagues, all of it we're about to go through. You're going to know I was with you, empowering you through the whole thing a year from now, just as soon as all the suffering is over. In hindsight, speaking of answers we don't like, right? I want to know now, God. I want the assurance now. As Christopher Wright notes, there are times in life when God calls us to step out in faith and obedience, trusting in his promises. But sometimes the proof of his presence and the sign that it was really God who thus called us lies ahead in an unknown future. Sometimes only with retrospect can we declare and celebrate with a certainty of faith that's been transformed into the reality of sight that God has indeed been and done all that he said he would be and do for us. Which brings us to God's final reason for suffering, to test us. To test us. Will we truly trust him through it? Will we lean on him as our sustaining strength in our weakness? Will God really be enough for us? Sometimes we, we, we close, great closing song, Christ is enough, Christ is enough, Christ is enough for me. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Is it true in your life? God says, we're about to find out. Am I really enough for you? Even if I'm all you have, even if I have systematically stripped everything away like I did for Job, will you still praise me, cling to me? Where does your hope and security ultimately lie? Friends, I want to encourage you. There is only one foundation that you can build your life on this morning that is firm enough to withstand any storm that may come your way in this life and his name is Jesus the solid rock the one who beckons you to come to me and I will give you rest this morning the one who draws near to you in your suffering who came all the way from heaven all the way to the cross to prove it the one who is holy and yet emptied himself to die for you to come through for you to deliver you the one who now calls you to trust him and to follow him and promises that if you will, behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. His name is Jesus. And if he is for you, then what on earth can stand against you? You have nothing to fear, Christian. Nothing can snatch you out of his hands.